2: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Alima Mahaber. In this episode, we are very grateful to be joined by June Caroline Ehrlich, who will be speaking on her book, Natural Disasters in Latin America and the Caribbean, Coping with Calamity, published in 2021 by Routledge. June is the editor-in-chief of Revista, the Harvard Review of Latin America, and publications director at Harvard's David Rockefeller Center for Latin American Studies. Apart from her book, We're featuring today on the podcast. She is also the author of Telenovelas in Pan Latino Context, as well as Disappeared, A Journalist Silenced, The Irma Flacca Story, and A Gringa in Bogota Living Colombia's Invisible War. She teaches journalism at Harvard Extension and Summer Schools and coordinates the journalism capstone and internship programs there. She has also lived and worked in Latin America and Germany as a foreign correspondent. So, a very, very warm welcome to the podcast, June. Very excited to be talking to you, and I'm very excited about the conversation we're about to have.
1: Thank you, Aleem. I'm so glad to be here in this space and to be able to talk about my book and my passion. Um, I might add that my passion about natural disasters, by the way, they don't exist. There's no such thing as a natural disaster. There are natural calamities. Like hurricanes and earthquakes and droughts uh, and floods, and all the things I write about in my book, in which many of our listeners have experienced. But the natural disaster comes because governments and systems don't think before, during, or after in a way that keeps the most people from being hurt, the most property from being damaged. And that's been a passion of mine um, ever since I was a young reporter on the Lakeland Ledger in Lakeland, Florida, which is not all that far from where the latest hurricane um, took its toll. But I was um, sent down to Honduras with a resident of Lakeland who had gathered toys and clothes um, for the people of her town. And I went down there and just saw the, the devastation of what a hurricane can wreak and also how, in this case... The town managed to build back better, not to use a very original phrase, but I think it's a good phrase, build back better. Uh, So that was my first exposure to hurricanes, the impacts of natural disasters, and I've been thinking about them ever since. So when the opportunity to write this book came about from Rutledge, um, I had already done a book for them on telenovelas, a very different type of subject, and was approached about doing this one because I had mentioned my interest in the subject. I jumped at it. Um, I guess I'm going on too long, Aline. Let's make no, this. No,
2: a- you, you're not. Please um, continue. You know, it's fine.
1: So, yeah, so this is uh, what happened. And many people ask me, oh, what countries do you cover in your book? And it's true that I cover, uh, that's in quotes. You can't see the quotes because we're just not using video. But, um, I deal specifically with Cuba and Chile and Haiti and Mexico, but most of the book is about themes because I don't think that we can look at Puerto Rico, for example, as an example of what happens when structures don't work. And I hope you'll ask me about that specifically later. I'm not going to go into that right now. But um, it has to do with something that the wonks call good governance. And that means how effective are the governmental systems in place, not just for natural disasters, for everything for healthcare, for COVID, for schools, and natural disasters in a way reveal the fissures that already exist in a society. Another section of the book deals with something I don't think people talk about nearly enough in terms of natural disasters, and that's trauma, because it's traumatic, because even if you get saved, even if you're a survivor There's all this, this loss, this grieving, you know, it may be for silly, stupid things like a photo album. You can't replace, or it can be for something very heartbreaking, like losing a mom or a dad or a cousin or a child. And so I think people think that, oh, okay, The hurricane was here, the earthquake was here, the tsunami was here, and it's over, and it's kind of like when you, you know, you just have to get over it and start again. And on one level, that's true. We want to spend a lot of time and effort on rehabilitation. But I also think that we need to look back and work with people on what this natural disaster did to their psyches, what it means in terms of loss.
2: Right. Um, there's uh, so many um, great points um, which you point out, you, you talked about in the book, and which I want to sort of expand on. And as you brought up, you know, at the beginning, um, your past experience as a journalist, I, I think um, um, that so that it, it definitely shows in your writing. You know, um, just um, having read the book, I have to say I was um, just really totally impressed, not only by what you had to say, and we'll get into that, but just how you, you said it, the way you related material. I think it was so you know resonant, resonant to such that anyone I think could pick up the book, read it, understand it, and and get it. I think I I read a review where it said uh, they described your writing as a transitional stream of consciousness. I I think I kind of felt that. So I'm wondering if this was intentional on your part, if it came up naturally on its own. I'm I'm really curious about that.
1: I think it comes up naturally on its own. It's my way of writing. But it was kind of complicated by the fact that... I did most of the writing during COVID, so I was alone. I was in quarantine, just going out for walks. So I think I had a chance to think about how natural disasters related to my life and the life of others and not to just look at it in terms of statistics um or uh, academic analysis, but what you read in the book tends to be my my writing style
2: right right And I guess just expanding on that point you know I have to admit um, many times throughout the book I found what you had to say so you know emotionally um, resonant as well you know the re- the way you relate people's uh, personal stories, their experiences, um, You know, sometimes a very horrific trauma, uh, as you mentioned, they went through or the families or community members went through. Uh, Many times throughout the book, I um, found myself like crying. And as the first time, I think I experienced that with a, you know, quote, academic oriented book. And I I found this was especially the case with uh, the story of Omara Sanchez, who you talked about. And maybe I'll let you speak on this, you know, for those who might not be familiar with this uh, incident, uh, why was it so important to feature Omira's story and others like her in the book? And di- did you take special care in terms of how you featured them, anything that you intentionally set out to do in depicting and relating their stories?
1: Omira Sanchez, um, I think, was for me a kind of watershed of seeing how incompetent... Structures could fail our children, our citizens. Um, Omaira was a 13-year-old girl uh, in Armero, Colombia, which is a coffee-growing country, and Omaira was just your, you know, normal, pretty good, happy student on the verge of adolescence. And she was trapped by this horrific landslide, which took 25,000 of 31,000 residents of this of this Colombian town. But what was different about Omida's case is that her aborted rescue was televised. And I might add internationally as well as in Colombia. And so people, including myself, had the chance, had the opportunity to see this very dignified little girl with her gold earrings, studs, her black curly hair to see what she looked like what she talked like. You can actually go on YouTube today and put in Omida Sanchez and hear how even in this moment of not being rescued of these abortive attempts, she prays for her mother, she prays for her father, she talks to her mom, um, she worries about being too fat, a very adolescent Concern. Um, she was pinned between a steel beam and the corpse of her aunt, and she was very, very worried that because she was fat, that she was going to crush her aunt's body. I know it sounds a bit grotesque, but it's not. It's like it's total dignity. It's totally a child a maturing child trying to be in the situation and the world was watching and they um people could not get a power generator to her to clear out the water for a water pump um there were doctors there but they weren't surgeons and they, they said that the only way to get her out at that point was to amputate, and they did not have the skills to amputate. Um, I, this, this really, it really got to me. It got to me because as a television viewer, you feel very powerless. I mean, this is not... You know, this is not fiction. You're watching somebody that you can't help. And she, she stuck with me. And that's one of the reasons I decided to, to feature her. Um, the other reason is that in the course of my research, Alim, I realized that there was another little girl, and maybe many other little girls, who was in a similar situation. I read of another little girl who died. She was 11. And this time, it was after the earthquake in Haiti. And like Omaira, Anika St. Louis, was. she was 11. She was trapped in the rubble of her house. And for 48 hours, volunteers tried to save her. And like O'Myra, she was pinned, her right leg was pinned under a steel beam. And in this case, the neighbors found a portable power saw in a generator, and they freed her. So this should have been a happy ending. And so she lived in this little village and the local doctor could only offer her some painkillers. And the nearest hospital was three hours away. And she bled out before she got there. And this little girl was buried in her Girl Scouts uniform in a veil. And so for me, Aline, O'Myra and Anika are individual faces of collective calamity. And we cry for them and we wish things would have been different. And I wanted my readers to understand that. I wanted them to understand that we have to face disasters even before they begin. That the next time there'll be access to equipment and to hospitals. That the next time little girls can grow into productive members of society. And that we, you, Aline, me, our listeners have to face natural disasters together before, during and after as a community building back better even before we have to build back and that's why I wanted to write about Omaida
2: well um, it's um, that image I remember of her I think you may have featured it in the book to me I think is haunting. It's so such a sad story for both Omira and Onika, but as as you say, it's still it's a sad story, but a very powerful message behind that that um you spoke about um so you mentioned um just now in speaking about Omira and also at the beginning of our conversation. Um, this idea of um, structures not working properly, uh, incompetent structures. Um, could you uh, expand on that and why, why you think it's um, hampering our disaster planning, disaster recovery efforts in Latin America and the Caribbean?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think obviously one of the problems is a lack in many countries of a culture of planning. Uh, I think that, you know, one can look at, at Cuba as a counterexample, and that's a case which is breaking down now, but it has laws, regulations, and directives that directly take into account um, what happens in a disaster. Um, that institutions are invested in, that you think about land use regulations. We've seen that just recently in Florida, where, you know, obviously land use was not thought about. Um, We need to think about building codes and hazard-proof infrastructure. You see in, in, in Mexico how time and time again, um, because of first, in the first earthquake, because of faulty building codes and in subsequent earthquakes, because of lack of conforming to these codes. And perhaps, as is now, there are court cases, but um, corruption. You know, people want to do things cheaply. Um, You've got to prepare people. You've got to prepare people with drills. You've got to have people know, you know, where to go and and what to do. Um, You have to cope with natural disasters afterwards, first of all, by building things back. But more than that, to think about the emotional and traumatic impact of these disasters. You have to treat disasters before, during, and after as kind of a whole. And as I wrote about in, in the book, Aleem, uh, in Chile, Harvard has a, pro- has a project which are, is trying to deal in a very holistic way with the outcome of the tsunamis there, um, it's it's a way of thinking about community, and I think in this day and age we don't think enough about communities and what they mean and how to strengthen them.
2: So, any uh, the context of disasters. Um... Why is community important? Why should we be, f- be focusing on that more?
1: Okay. First of all, because it's the communities who can respond to a natural disaster in a very, you know, immediate sense during the disaster. How, you know, how do you evacuate? Uh, what do you take? Where do you go? Uh, what do you do? But it's also the communities that know where the deficits are, you know, that can make builders respond to living up to codes, that can put the pressure on for land use. I think that when you think about, you know, community, you have, in a sense, the people who are there on the ground another way of saying community is civil society a self-determined civil society and i don't necessarily mean that it has to be the village or the city this can go across villages and cities but it's the the people on you know on the ground and again going back to Cuba, you see that they had a very successful uh, system in which many people from the same natural disaster would die in nearby countries, but in Cuba would have very little loss in terms of human beings and uh, material Material damage. Obviously, hurricanes are hurricanes. You can't avoid a hurricane, but you also see a an erosion in Cuba of those systems. Uh, where, for example, in Hurricane Irma in 2017, 10 people died, which is a lot for Cuba because it has mandatory evacuation, because it does all these preventative things. It was starting to fray. And then in 2019, and I went to Cuba and I talked to a lot of people about this, um, there was an unexpected tornado. I mean, Cuba's a land of hurricanes. It's not a land of tornadoes. And the government simply did not respond. I mean, it responded late and not, too, not enough, and things weren't built back. And um, it was just that the, the system was starting to, to fray. Maybe I'm not going to make any uh, prognosis there, but I think that, as I said before, natural disasters are barometers. And you see, you see how they are meaningful to civil society. So you the very latest, just a few weeks ago, um, Hurricane Ian there were small protests throughout the country. Now, you know, you say, oh, what does that mean? Puerto Ricans, we protest all the time, or Haitians are on the street. You know, in Cuba, um, there was a big protest in um, 2021, and thousands of protesters were, were detained, and people were put in jail, and it was absolute draconian. And yet this latest hurricane um, caused a blackout and the blackout caused all the refrigerators and the freezers to go off and people stand in line in hours for Cuba to get meat. And all of a sudden they don't have any meat. All of a sudden their milk goes bad. And so they, they take to the streets. Wasn't big demonstrations, just small demonstrations all over the country. But again, here we have natural disasters as a barometer of what civil society is doing, is reacting to the government.
2: Uh, as you um mentioned, uh, Cuba, and um, I think it was in the exact case of the unexpected tornado that um, affected the island. I think back in 2019, like you talked about in the book, it um, seemed that uh, wireless technology access to the internet, it um, sort of um, changed the typical um, reliance of, um, what you might say, government uh, on the government in terms of how they responded to to the disaster, uh, it was helpful in terms of rallying civil society and NGO support. Am I correct? Like,
1: oh, you're totally, you're totally correct. And you know, while you're on that subject, I think that uh, the technology has made an immense change, um, not just in Cuba, but in so many places in terms of. You know, locating victims of disasters, of getting information out about what's, you know, what's happening, what's flooding. Um, even reading in the, in the New York Times, here it's not cell phones, but it's security cameras with people who were actually watching what was happening uh, with their homes um, from their other homes or from their evacuation sites, and being able to, you know, to to watch and perhaps to, you know, warn people or to try to take preventative um, action. Of course, in many cases that wasn't possible, but I think technology has really changed the um, the ball game on. Response to natural disasters:
2: uh, I think uh, you pointed out in the book as well the the diaspora uh, of many Latin American and Caribbean countries, um, through becoming increasingly connected to events back in their homeland, for example, maybe they're watching a through um, you know video on their phone, um, they're talking to their family, they're talking to their friends. that has also uh, affected disaster response as well, right?
1: Definitely. And I think also, you know, you, one of the things that we think about um, when we think about Caribbean communities, uh, there's very strong, you know, Haitian, Puerto Rican, uh, Jamaican, Cuban diaspora communities, that these people not only can give help. Uh, in terms of, you know, material help to to build back communities and to give support uh, for demonstrations or for public outcry. I think you see that very much in the case of Puerto Rico with the situation of the electrical grid that the, the diaspora community has been extremely vocal about that issue, but there's there's another thing, and this is not too much in the book; it's implied, but I've thought about it a lot afterwards. Is that for now, at least, of the United States, um, England, or wherever these people are um, in the diasporas? Uh, but I'll talk specifically about the United States. They're living in a democracy in a place where they can have a voice in a place where they perhaps live in a town where they're on a planning committee uh, where they belong to a PTA where they are much more aware perhaps of civil society power and that is an experience that can also be transmitted to their brothers and sisters on the islands. You know, it's this kind of abstract but powerful, you know, yes, we can, and we can have a voice. And I don't mean to imply that there aren't natural voices on the islands. Of course there are, and very strong ones indeed. But I think in terms of actual structures of how you get Things done of how you get beyond the protest, of how you use lawsuits, of how you use existing structures um, to um, to sue, to make things better, to get codes, to make sure the codes are implemented. I think that's an important role the diaspora is playing and can play even more strongly.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: Uh, they often help to, you know, elevate uh, the, the voices on, on the homeland or, or, or the island. Um, and as you said, they help, you know, to, to go beyond. And um, you know, sort of tying in what you said about the uh, diaspora, I, I remember there was an example uh, uh, in the book about them helping to secure um, psychological, um, psychologists, you know, to focus on the the psycho social or psychological impact of natural disasters in the Caribbean uh, in some in some um, cases
1: yeah yeah I, I think it's it's really uh, you know it's something that is so um, so important uh, one thing that I would really like to see though is that you know many people you know, living in the United States in the, in the diaspora, you know, they have they have hard lives. You know, they're, they're working, they're sending back remittances, their lives are very full. Um, but I would like to see more of taking the time again to think about what is beforehand, what is our role, what can we do before the disaster hits?
2: because um, oftentimes so much um we're very reactive right
1: yeah i mean it's it's an it's a you know it's a natural um tendency, especially when you have a very um a very very busy life is that you know the hurricane comes and then you you know send money or clothes or toys or um whatever and instead of thinking about well we know a hurricane's going to come because hurricanes always come we know that an earthquake will probably come because earthquakes always come that's not so much the case in the caribbean but certainly if you look at uh, countries like you know like mexico um, you know it's not if it's it's when and where and so how do we as a diaspora community think about how we're going to um, send this psychosocial aid? Um, how do we think about, you know, pairing with our folks on the island to make sure that codes are up to standards? And how do we talk about corruption? I, I think that corruption is such a big issue in terms of natural disasters. Um, first of all, because on two levels. First of all, because when you talk about a big disaster, you're usually talking about a huge amount of government and foreign aid. So, how does that get distributed? Who's going to watch watch over it? Can we set up a um, a committee, a um, joint diaspora, local, international committee? To sort of be a a watchdog, um, and the other, you know, the other issue of corruption is on a much more mundane kind of issue, and I call it corruption. In some cases, it is blatant corruption, where you say you're doing one thing and you're using this type of material, and you're using another. But there's also what I call mini corruptions where you're just cost cutting, where you're just going to the you know, brother of the cousin, of the friend, so that you get a permit to build in a place where you really shouldn't be building. You know, those things aren't gonna be done away with either in the United States or in the Caribbean, or any place out in Latin America, but they can be mitigated. And that's a very important role for civil society, to make sure that they are mitigated, that schools don't collapse, that houses don't collapse if they don't have to. If they, you know, there are things that can't be prevented, and there are things that can be prevented. And when they can't be prevented, there are ways of responding which are much more equitable than response, which if you look at the case of, you know, Nicaragua, which actually, I think, in my opinion, the handling of natural disaster relief money is what caused or provoked the Sandinista revolution, because Somoza, who was the leader then, the dictator, just decided not to rebuild downtown and to build up where he and his cronies had money and just left everything a shambles and used the money for himself and his cronies and people just rose up. So, you know, I don't want to be a Pollyanna and I know you can't fix everything, but I think we have to think about these systems. We have to think about what we do about, corruption and how we build in watchdogs. Um, We also have to think about how to make the judicial system responsive to cases uh, of mismanagement and corruption. People have to be held accountable for what happens before, during, and after a natural disaster.
2: Right. I definitely agree with you dear um mini corruption as you put it is very rampant <laughs> throughout the region and um, uh being from here in a, you kind of see it every day and you kind of get used to it and accept it but it's only when um you know disaster strikes that you see you know the the result of that you know i guess social acceptance of um those uh, corruption, you know, playing out and just the dire consequences it can have, and uh, I guess tying in um, to what um, uh, you said just now, you know, and as you brought up in the in the Sandinista example, you know, if uh, reconstruction is ineffective, uh, it, it doesn't work. As you said, um, they left the rubble there in the downtown. Um, extended period of time, you know, and as we see, if if it's handled in an inequitable way, as you brought about in the book, if it favors certain groups over others, are you showing the book time and time again that natural disasters, it can be a catalyst for protests and outright revolt, right? I'm wondering if you could speak on this more.
1: Yeah, I also, I want to, you know, I don't want to sound like a downer. So um, I want to look at Puerto Rico for a minute, and um you know we after hurricane maria uh people really i think went to bat to say you know that the number of deaths uh had you know as much more than the government was saying and that um you know that the you know basically getting out the the leaders of the um government uh because of the fact that so many thousands of residents were left um, without power or water, that the deaths were underestimated. And so you had that situation. But now, you know, just really recently, you know, Hurricane Fiona caused widespread flooding, and it left again, hundreds and thousands of residents without water or power. So You know, rebuilding structures from Maria and now from Fiona um, have been held back by technical, political, and financial challenges. And I'm not going to put myself on the radio show saying corruption, but yes, corruption. Um, And that no government authority has sufficient resources on the ground in Puerto Rico uh, to conduct a real Assessment and or to react swiftly to disaster, so this is this is a case of failed structures, um, and then you have okay, so you have something which is supposed to mitigate these failed structures, which is a U.S. Canadian consortium, and they received a fifteen-year contract to transmit and deliver power to customers. So Luma, as it's called, was supposed to upgrade Puerto Rico's grid with billions of dollars in U.S. federal support. But, you know, the electricity continued to go out. Um, with Fiona, there was a you know major, major blackout for a long time. Um, critics um, have called the company, quote, secretive and corrupt. End of quote. Those aren't my words. Whether I agree with it or not is besides the point. But you also have, and I think this is really interesting, you also have labor groups, environmentalists, and academics who are beginning to offer comprehensive alternatives. Like there's one called e Queremos Sol, We Want Sun. And this is a proposal to install Distributed solar power across the island. That is thinking about systems to reduce Puerto Rico's dependence on fossil fuels and what they see as incompetent private administration. So here you see the community drawing together to find solutions. Now, I would suggest that that's really effective, but it has to go hand in hand with legal and judicial actions to make sure that administration does not continue to be quote unquote incompetent. You can't just put into place wonderful alternatives without making sure that they have the legal bounds. Otherwise, it's just going to be a few houses here and a few houses there. And you know what? The next hurricane comes, and people are going to be without water and power all over again.
2: Well, um, sort of building on on the um, points you just made, uh, I want to bring up uh, a reference uh, to the aftermath of the 2010 earthquake uh, in Haiti um, that you... uh, featured in the book, and you feature this quote as well, uh, in which Dan Decat, uh the famous Haitian um, writer, she posed the question, what if rural entrepreneurs, women's organizations, and peasant farmers who face the brunt of diminishing food production, environmental uh, degradation, deadly hurricanes, and climate, Had been integral players in the reconstruction plans, she asks. What if those things did not happen, those uh, voices uh, were not heard? And as you say um, towards the, the end of the book, but it is always the poor who have the flimsiest houses and who are the most vulnerable in times of crisis. The disadvantaged are experts at coping with calamity their voices uh, must be heard, and as you um, you know, pointed out just now, uh, you pointed to you know case study of a situation where we might be get getting better at integrating people and having their voices heard and listened to in the disaster recovery process. You know, moving forward in an innovative way and a new way to ensure inclusiveness and participatory, participatory decision-making. I'm wondering if you could um, you know, touch on that more. In what ways are we getting better and in what ways we might still need to improve?
1: Yeah, I think that we're getting better because um, there's more consciousness, whether it comes from the influence of the, of the diaspora, whether it becomes... Um, social media, that you have access to what other societies have done. Um, I think that it depends on the actual fabric of the um, society itself before the disaster hits on how strong and integrated the, uh, the response would be. I think it's also... Getting better because we realize that natural disasters aren't just something that are the um, wrath of God or bad luck. That it's part of a systematic reflection of climate change, and that so we're talking about something bigger. We're talking about something that not only affects us as an individual, the day our house comes down or the day that our meat gets spoiled in the blackout. It's our children and it's our grandchildren and it's our great-grandchildren. And one of the things that we have not talked much about on this program, Aline, is that natural disasters aren't just the hurricanes, the earthquakes, the tsunamis, but there are also floods and droughts. And this really affects communities on their very heart and soul because it affects their food production. That, And if you don't have food production, you can't have community, you can't have society, you can't have governments. You won't have children, and you won't have grandchildren, and you won't have great grandchildren. So that it becomes more urgent, given the urgency. Um, excuse me for using those words twice in a row, but it is urgent um, to deal with, you know, with this. Um, hurricanes have been going on forever, but they're getting worse. Um, There's been a scientific links between climate change and earthquakes. Obviously, there's a direct link between floods and droughts. And so I think that we have to come together. We have to think about this problem. Um, And we have to face it and strengthen the structures that we have so that we can face before. During and after,
2: one of uh, the points you you brought about just now is the idea of the collective being affected, the community being affected. Uh, you said uh, their hearts and souls, and I think you talked about that in relation to their livelihoods. But another way in which their hearts and souls might be affected might be very um, literally on the, the mental. Uh, the stress, the mental trauma, the shared trauma on the collective memory of those who experience uh, natural disasters. Uh, I think you dedicate an entire chapter on this in the book. Uh, And I'm hoping uh, you you might be able to expand on on these ideas more.
1: Definitely. Um, You know, trauma causes... Um, depression, it causes mental instability, um, and there actually have been studies done that women who experience uh, trauma while they're pregnant can pass that trauma trauma down to their fetuses. Um, this goes into the productivity of a society, of the way society thinks about itself, Um, people who don't live up to their potential, the kids in school who are always fearful, um, it's very similar to what we're experiencing, I think, in the, in, you know, in the United States with the school shootings, this, this constant sense of apprehensiveness, this constant sense of, of trauma, of collective mourning, that there's nothing wrong about mourning, but when it, it stops you from acting, then there is. And there has to be a way to you know, to deal with this. And I've been very surprised at how long these, you know, memories and these, these fears um, linger. Um, over the summer, I was in Portugal for the first time, and people were still talking about the earthquake. Well, the earthquake happened in the 1500s and this is not people who know i wrote a book on natural disasters it just comes up in conversations because it really destroyed uh it destroyed lisbon on a similar note and perhaps a more positive note um i was in puerto rico when the uh, earthquake happened a couple of years ago and um I was in this uh, town in the south of, of Puerto Rico and going to visit the uh, the camps that had been built up with refugees from people whose houses weren't good enough to stay in. And there was this really elaborate um, tent um, up on a hill and it was, you know, it had a little kitchen in it and, you know, it was sort of laid out like kitchen dining room, etc., And it was in this, had a beautiful view, um, of the ocean. And, um, I said, I said to the woman, well, how did you, you know, why did you decide to, um, to come here? And she said to me, oh, well, you know, in the last earthquake, there was a tsunami. And, you know, All over the island, i had been told, you know, Puerto Rico generally doesn't get earthquakes and, uh, you know, we're used to hurricanes and not earthquakes. And I was taken aback by her reference to the last earthquake. And I didn't say anything to her. Um, I I didn't want to embarrass her or embarrass myself. And so I went back and I went to uh, to Google. And I asked Mr. Google, okay, you know, earthquake, Puerto Rico, tsunami. It was a hundred years ago. And yet, you know, she had been taught in school or by her parents, you know, that what you want to do in an earthquake, there can be a tsunami and you get to the highest point you can. So it's both um, something that goes two ways. It's uh, mentally taxing. Um, because of anxiety, because of trauma, because of depression, but there's also a collective memory of what you have to do.
2: Right. And um, I think in the book also, you touch on post-traumatic stress, but also the idea of post-traumatic growth. So I'm, I'm wondering, um, what do you personally, or the book might have a say in getting planners regional, national, local government leaders, and those that are responsible for managing disasters to do more, to think more about how not only to avoid the post-traumatic stress, but also to encourage the post-traumatic growth as well.
1: Yes, I think that's a very, uh, that concept isn't mine, um, but It's one that I very firmly believe in, and it's what calls people to to action, that people come out of. When I was talking about anxiety and about depression, um, I was talking about post-traumatic stress. I wanted to avoid the use of that clinical term because I'm not a uh, I know I used it a lot in the book, but I was quoting people. Um, my own, it's, it's anxiety, it's depression, it's the things that keep you from being a productive member of society. But on the flip side, they can, and I think you've seen this in, 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 in Puerto Rico, it can mobilize you to grow, to fight, you know? And, you know, you lose something, and you can mope about it and you can be paralyzed or you can say, nunca más, never again.
2: And, well, I think we're um, nearing the end of the interview, June. Um, so many great ideas, uh, insights uh, were shared. Uh, as we end the interview, um, I'll ask, so what is the key takeaway um, that you want um, you know, readers, potential readers, to know about the book as we end off?
1: I want them to know that natural disasters aren't natural, that there are governmental and structural reasons that they become a disaster instead of a calamity. I want them to know that there's something they can do about it by strengthening systems, again, and I'm tired of using the phrase, before, during, and after. And that's very important. I want them to understand that natural disasters aren't just isolated events. They're part, they're a systematic part of climate change. And I want them to understand that if they want their children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren to live in a better world, or maybe even to live in a world that they have to do something about this problem very proactively. I want to thank you for being here, Aleem. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you and to have your great questions. They've been very thought-provoking. Thank you.
2: I appreciate um, your responses. Uh, It's been equally thought-provoking as well. And I think uh, that's a really uh, good note to end on. Uh, Just before uh, we say our goodbyes, I'll just ask, I think I have to ask, you know, what's next for you? Specifically, are you hoping to build on the ideas you explored in a book? Is there any uh, new material you might be working on that you might like to share?
1: Well, first of all, um, the book is being translated into Spanish and it's going to be published by Penguin Random House in Colombia this spring. So I think that will be an opportunity for a whole new group of readers, many of them in the Caribbean, to have access to the ideas there. And I plan to continue to write and speak and think about the subject for years to come.
2: Thank you, Aline. Great, and apart from the uh, Spanish version, can you let everyone know where they might be able to access book?
1: Sure, on Amazon or directly from Rutledge.
2: Great, it's as easy as that. It's easy. (laughs) <laughs> so um, it has my personal recommendation. I've um, read it and totally engaged with the ideas you explore. And it was um, a fantastic conversation, actually talking with you about it. And uh, maybe when you write your next book, we could uh, talk again. <laughs> I'd love to. <laughs> right. Well, June... Uh, Goodbye, and it's been great. You have a good one.
1: Thank you.